Today we're going to talk about two parables that Jesus tells back to back in the Gospel of Matthew. Parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. Uh, both are, are, are neat parables. Uh, this is maybe a different side of Jesus that we don't always talk about. Jesus is getting pretty fierce here as uh, his opposition against him has, has grown substantially. Uh, the setting of this is this is these are just days before Jesus is going to be crucified. So Jesus has made his last entry into Jerusalem and is teaching in the temple when this happens. As we're going to see, I'm going to read for you Matthew 21, tw- verse 23. We're going to actually begin in 28, but I want to read 23 for you just to get an idea of, of where we are, what's going on. Jesus had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He, he taught at the temple, and this is one of the days of, the, of that week, of Passover week, that he's, he's in the temple teaching. And it says here in Matthew 21, 23, it says this, Jesus entered the temple course, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus is teaching in the temple. Those who normally teach in the temple and who have authority of the temple don't, don't like the fact that Jesus is there teaching. Uh, remember, they're supposed to be the religious leaders of, of their people. They have forsaken that job, many of which uh, have decided that politics is a much greater thing to, to do and, and, and chase and wealth as well, and they've lost their focus, and Jesus is trying to bring them back. And so what we're going to see today is Jesus in opposition to them. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we go through these two parables, that that's the audience, the religious leaders of Jesus' time and place. Or that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to all people, but those are who, who are there. And I joke with you guys all the time that sarcasm is one of my spiritual gifts. I'm not sure it's actually a spiritual gift or not, but I'm just going to say it is because I have it, right? Um, Jesus is going to use some sarcasm days. So for those of us who like sarcasm, this is your day, right? Here you go. Here's your example of it, because Jesus is going to get after these guys pretty, pretty good. The, the problem we sometimes have when we talk about Jesus is either we make him into somebody who has no backbone or we make him into somebody who has too much. And, and Jesus is right there in the middle, right? He's going to stand up for, for those he believes he's going to stand up, that need standing up for. He's going to love those who he believes need loved, right? That's the Jesus we see in the Gospels. Jesus is, is constantly loving people nobody else wants to love and standing up to those nobody else wants to stand up to, Right? And that's what you're going to see today in, in this Jesus. We begin the story in Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. It says this, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. And the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Jesus starts the parable with a simple question, right? Something that they're all going to understand. The father has two sons. Those sons help the father in his, in his job, right? And that job is going to the vineyard, picking grapes. The first son says, no, dad, I'm not going to go. Starts thinking about it. Feels guilty. We've all been children before, right? Like, oh, man, dad asked me to do that. I just need to go do that. Feels guilty later in the day, goes and works. The other son answers correctly to begin with, right? Says, yeah, dad, I'll go. Decides that TV and video games are more important and stays home instead of going to work, right? Now they were, I know they didn't have TV and video games, so I understand that. Right? You get the point. Agrees to do it, says the right thing, makes the dad happy, and then real, and until the dad realizes that he never showed up. He never actually comes to work. And Jesus asked his audience, which of the two actually did what his father wanted? The answer, of course, is the first, Right? The first son actually went to work. 
actually got something done? They answered the same way. The first they answered, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now that wasn't the answer they were expecting, right? For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is a setup, right? Jesus sets them up with this parable. He knows how they're going to answer the parable. How we all would answer the parable, right? Well, the son who actually went and accomplished something, he's the son who did what the father asked. And you're right. The problem is, Jesus is saying to them, to their face, right? Not behind their back, not on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else, right? Where everybody is tough there with the keyboard and hiding behind a computer screen. Jesus says to their face, you guys are right. The problem is, you guys are the second son. You talk about God. You teach about God. You wear the robes that tell everybody how important and important you are and how important you think you are. You eat dinner with all the right people. You go to all the right places. You live in the right neighborhood. The problem is, Jesus says, you don't get it. You've missed the mark. And he goes to the opposite extreme. Now you can remember, these are the elders and teachers. These are the most respected people in Jewish culture. And Jesus says to them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you. They're more important. Their, their status is higher than your status. These are the people who are going to kill him, by the way, in just a few days. Now you know why. People don't like being told that. When they think they have power and authority and are special, they don't like to be told that they don't have that power and authority and they're not that special. The problem is the people who are supposed to get it have missed it. And the people who no one would ever think would get it have gotten it. And Jesus uses these two groups, the prostitutes and tax collectors, as an example. Now, we know about tax collectors in the ancient world. A tax collector was essentially a traitor. If you were a Jewish person and you collected taxes for Rome, you would turn your back on your own people. Because what did a tax collector do? There's no tax collectors here today, right? None of you guys work for the IRS? Okay, good. This will be much smoother if you're not. The tax collector which collects taxes, but how did the tax collector make a living? By collecting a little more, right? So however much that came down to them, hey, this is how much you need to collect from this person, how they made money, how they made a living was by collecting just a little bit more and putting that directly into their pocket. So tax collectors have never been, it's never been a popular job, right? But it was especially unpopular in this time and place because they essentially were trading on their own people. They were taking from their own people to give to this empire a long ways away who could care less about them. And prostitutes have never been, that job has never been held in high esteem, right? Now remember in the ancient world, people most likely never chose to be a prostitute. It was something that was chosen for them, right? And Jesus says, these people who you look down your nose at, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, are entering the kingdom before you. Because they get it. That the kingdom is built on grace. That's not how good you are that gets you in. It's how good your God is. But it's not about you and your righteousness. It's about His righteousness. And the problem with the religious elite of Jesus' day was they had the robe and they had the title 
And they had the power and the authority, and yet it wasn't given to them by God. It was given to them by their fellow man. And God's ways, the Bible tells us, are much greater and higher than our ways. So Jesus looks at them in the eyes and says, hey, these people that you don't even want to be around are entering the kingdom before you because you've missed the mark. Because you forgot who and what is most important. And so that's how Jesus starts the parable. Now you can imagine how those people are as they sit there listening to him. You ever listen to something? Maybe you've watched too much political news this week, right? And you're starting to get a little hot under the collar and it's st- turn it off, right? It's stop. You won't be able to sleep at night if you keep watching that stuff all the time. And you watch, you hear something and it makes you upset. You can imagine how, they're, 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 how receptive they are to this message. Jesus isn't going to stop though. He's not going to let it slide. And so he tells another parable in verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He's made, he's done everything he can, right? He's invested all kinds of time and resources into this vineyard. And he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. This is typical in the ancient world, right? A rich landowner would have it. They would lease it out to somebody else. The people would farm it. The people then owe the landowner part of the harvest, and they keep the rest of it. So he's rented it out. He lives somewhere else. He's not anywhere around. When the harvest time approached, in verse 34, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. He owns the land. He owns the wall. He owns the watchtower, right? This agreement is they farm it. They take care of it. They get some of the profit, and he gets some of the profit. So he sends a servant to go collect his share. What happens in verse 35 would have shocked their first, the first listeners of Jesus' story and should be shocking to us as well. It says, The tenant seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. And he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I told you Jesus isn't backing down as he gets in this story deeper and deeper. And what do we have here? I want you to think for a minute about Israel's history. The history of Israel, as we read it in the Old Testament, is God chose these people, started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They became slaves in Egypt. God frees them through his mighty hand and mighty acts, right, in the book of Exodus. Moses leads them across the Red Sea to freedom. Now the knuckleheads get out in the desert and things don't go so well, right? And they wander for 40 years because they can't listen. None of us relate to that, right? No. It's the time you look down, right? Don't make eye contact. And they wander for 40 years till they finally enter the promised land. Then they enter the promised land and then what happens? A cycle happens. If you've read your Old Testament, where they have a leader who will lead them to God, they'll be faithful for a while, then what happens? They fall away. They chase after other gods. Then someone comes again, right? God sends another leader to rise up and take them. They come back and they get back to being faithful again. Then that leader dies, and then what happens? Right back to worshiping other gods and goddesses again. And that happens time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Now God sent those leaders, we refer to them as prophets, right? Time and time again to say, hey, and the prophets came, it wasn't like, it wasn't puppies and rainbows. It was, it was turn or burn, right? It was repentance. It was, hey, now is the time to, to stop doing what you're doing. 
See the ignorance, see your ignorance, see your arrogance, turn around and follow after God. It wasn't a popular message they ever got to, to preach, but it was a message that was vitally important to the nation. What we have in this section is God going and reliving, Jesus is reliving Israel's history. The tenants are the people of Israel, and the servants are God's prophets. What happened to the prophets when they came to bring that wonderful news of, hey, you better stop what you're doing or God's going to have enough of this? They were often killed, beaten. That's what's happening in the story is we're reliving Israel's history. Jesus says, we, God sent people to you time and time again to give you this message, and what would you do to them? He killed them. Then what happens in this story? The landowner, who's God, sends his son, thinking there's no way they'll do to my son what they've done to my prophets. And the people Jesus speaking to in this moment are the people that in a few days will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus is foretelling his own death in this story, is he not? Saying God sent his son to this earth thinking they'll never treat him like they treated everybody else. And what did they do? They treated him the same. Jesus is going to end up in just a few days from this telling of the story on an execution stake being killed. Jesus is not softening his message as he continues to share this parable with them. Parable doesn't end there, though. Verse 40, it says, Jesus said, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This is a setup job again, guys. They don't know what we, just, what we all know, right? And this is their response in verse 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. He will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. What's he saying? They're pronouncing judgment upon themselves, right? Jesus says, what, man, what, what, would, the, what would the landowner do? And their thing is, huh, time for vengeance, right? And they're lucky, and we're lucky, that our God isn't like their description of the landowner. That our God is far too gracious. It's far too kind, it's far too loving, and far too compassionate, has way too much mercy. This is Jesus' response to them. And this is where I told you that sarcasm was going to come in, and it's verse 42. Remember, Jesus is talking to people, the religious leaders of his time and place, who know the book, right? They have access to those scrolls of the Old Testament like nobody else has access to them. They've studied it, they've interpreted it, they've wrestled with it. And Jesus says in verse 42 to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Now, if, you, if you're like me and you like sarcasm, this is your verse, right? Have they never read it before? Yeah, they've read it before. Because Jewish, little Jewish boys, if they were the best of the best after they had left their original schooling, if they were the, like Paul, for instance, later on, they continued into school with a rabbi, right? And what they did is they memorized the scriptures, Memorize them. Not a verse, not part of it, like whole books of the Bible. Like 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy memorized. All of it. So when Jesus asked them, have you never read the Scriptures? They've, yeah, they've read it. They've memorized large portions of it. The problem is, it's here. It isn't here. They've got it here. It hasn't impacted here. My professor that I took three years of Greek from, Professor Dale Cornett, he's one of the most humble men you'll ever meet in your life, said to us that there's eight inches between heaven and hell. Eight inches between your head and your heart. If this message only ever hits here, oh well. Jesus told us that the demons believe in God and they shudder, right? Belief here and here, these two have to connect. You need to know it here, but it better impact here. Because if it's just up here, who cares? You win at Bible trivia. Congratulations. You're the smartest person in Sunday school. That's great. Now what? These two have to connect. And the problem with Jesus' opponents here is they don't connect. They've got it here. It isn't here. Jesus said the prostitutes and the the tax collectors, they're grasping it here. They don't know it all here yet. That can be fixed. They're getting it here. Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118. It says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Talking about himself, of course, Jesus is the cornerstone. He continues in verse 43, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone, speaking about himself, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, if you put yourself in the religious leader's shoes, the message Jesus has for them isn't, again, it's not puppies and rainbows, right? And here he comes out right here and says it in verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. What were both parables about? About a vineyard. Jesus says, you guys have the robes, have the titles, have the knowledge, and you're not putting it to any use. And so what God's going to do is going to take it from you and he's going to give it to somebody else who's actually going to do something with it. Who's going to make it grow. And man, was he right. Because God takes it and gives it to a bunch of misfits. Jesus' first disciples. And that's what they are. They were the people who just weren't quite good enough to do it full time. That's why they were fishing. That's why they were collecting taxes. One of them is a zealot, right? Wants to overthrow the government. It's a, it's a, it's a bunch of 12 men you would not put together for any other purpose besides starting the greatest movement the world's ever known. They wouldn't have been your first team. They're not the A team, right? And yet Jesus brings them together and those 12 are going to change the world as we know it. And here we are almost 2,000 years later because God took it away from those who wouldn't produce and gave it to those who would. See, Peter, not not the best of the best. That's why he's a fisherman. And what does he do? He has a a fire that can't be put out until they finally have to kill him. The Apostle Paul is one of the best of the best. 
But he was one of these guys Jesus was talking about in this moment until he goes on a road, on a trip to Damascus, and God gets a hold of him, right? And changes everything. And then Paul cannot be stopped until the emperor Nero finally killed him. See, the only way you could shut these guys up is by, by literally taking their lives away from them. It's the only way you could quiet them down. Because they had something worth living for and something worth dying for. And they followed the example of this Jesus who in just a few days is going to be crucified by these people. Now you know why. They didn't have nice things to say about him. He's going to come back to life three days later. The resurrection, of course, the greatest moment in history of the world where death is, is defeated. And then his disciples, his earlier followers, cannot be stopped. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what's stopping us? What is it? Embarrassed? We don't know the Bible well enough. We don't. There's like a thousand excuses. You ever read the story of Moses in the desert after he sees the burning bush? What's he do instantly? God says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and you're going to be my mouthpiece. I'm not good at talking, God. Moses, I want you. Well, it's, it's a long ways. God, he finally just comes out and says, God, I don't, I don't want to. And God says, that's not how this is going to work. When I say go, you go. Last week, if you were here, we heard from Yolanda and Andrew people who have accepted the call to go to the least of these. God's probably not calling you to that. What he is calling you to do is to go right where you are. At the grocery store, at the ball game, at work, wherever you might be, is to be the kind of person who has it here and whose actions first show that this Jesus is here. Then we follow up with our words. Right, Because as we saw here, Jesus warned us, talk is cheap. That's what the first parable was about, right? Jesus said, you can talk and use those words and, have, and spit a big game all you want, but unless it's producing something, who cares? And look how this section ends. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew who was talking about them. They finally get it, right? They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. They could have, they would have killed him right there. That's what the Bible's telling us. They absolutely, they would have just done, over with, right there, but they couldn't. Why? Because there's a group of people who've hit and getting hit right here, and they're scared because they know when it hits here, you can't be stopped. If it's just up here, oh well. When it's here, when it's in the heart, can't be stopped. And this message has not been stopped and will never be stopped. Because this message is about hope. I know Jesus is giving these guys a tongue lashing, and they, des- and they deserve it, by the way. But the message Jesus is trying to get across is one of hope. You remember... I want to show you guys this in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus, when we're about to celebrate it, when Jesus is born to a little virgin girl who has nothing and is nobody, right? In this obscure little providence in a kingdom far greater, something was spoken about him. It happens in Luke chapter 2. 
So I want to read. I want to read to you Luke two, starting in verse thirty-three. This is the story of Jesus' birth. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, "This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, too." Jesus is born, and Simeon, who's a prophet who had awaited this moment all his life, comes to Mary and tells her exactly what's happening right here, over three decades before it happens. That Jesus is going to cut to the heart. That pretending isn't going to be a thing anymore. That you're in or you're out. That those who often appear to be in are actually out because it hasn't gotten here. Simeon said, this, this son of yours will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And in this story, what is Jesus telling us? That the tax collectors and the prostitutes are doing what? They're rising. And that the religious leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, are doing what? They're falling. That God cares first and foremost about our hearts. That the outward stuff that we try to appear to other people, the front, the facade we put on, doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is right here. And you and I know, Jeremiah spoke about it, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah said. So we know, left on our own, our hearts aren't that great. But here rushes in a Savior, a rescuer. His name, of course, is Jesus. He comes because our hearts aren't all that great. And he says, I love you exactly how you are. Just come. There aren't many people in our lives who love us that way, are there? Who love us exactly how we are. Our flaws and our imperfections, our sins and our shortcomings, no matter how many skeletons are in the closet, Jesus reaches out the hand and says, if you'll just come, I've got this. See, there's no one else in this world whose, heart, whose hands our hearts can be trusted in like this Jesus. But there's no fronting with him. There's no pretending. There's no putting on a show because he doesn't care. What he cares about is right here. Who are we? And who can we become? See, God loves us exactly how we are, but he doesn't leave us that way, does he? changes us and he shapes us and he molds us. He's the potter, we're the clay. And if we trust in him and give it everything we have, we have a fire just like Peter and Paul and James and those who start out. If we have that fire, God can do amazing things with us. Not because we're amazing, because we're not. Because he is. If I do something on my strength, it's only going to go so far. If I do it in God's, there is no bounds. To where that can go. Whose strength are we relying on? The problem with the chief priests and the Pharisees is it was all them, right? It was their strength, their intelligence, their ability. It was them. And Jesus says, I can do a lot more with prostitutes and tax collectors than I can do with you. 
because they're willing to say, I have nothing to give. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to give this God of ours. Our hands are empty. Only thing we can give him is our heart. That's the only thing he's ever wanted. Have you given him your heart? If not, what are you waiting for? He's the only one who will keep it and protect it. The only one who will give you hope and a future. He's it. He's the only one that can be trusted with your deepest, darkest secrets, the things you want no one else to know. He holds them in his hands. And he says, I can take those things, sin and failure, hurts and pains, and I can turn them into something great if you let me. And he will, because he always has. So if you haven't yet done it, place your life, your heart, your hopes, and your dreams, and your future in his hands, because he will keep them, and he will do things with you that you never thought possible, because it's his power, it's not yours. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, these parables. While they are they're harsh to those of us who, who may call ourselves religious, Father, it's, a, it's an awakening, it's a reminder for us that it's not our power, but it's yours. That we have got nothing to give you, God, that it's all you. That you we don't meet you halfway. You come 100%. You come all the way to us. And God, we just ask that you would help us. No brother, we've... We just became a Christian. We've been a Christian for 50 years, God, to continue every day to place our heart in your hands, knowing that you will shape us and you will mold us and you will make us brand new every day. God, we're so grateful for your son Jesus who came and offered himself as a sacrifice for us to pay for all of our sin, all the junk, all the wrong choices, all the skeletons that we've hidden in the closet, God. We know we can keep no secret from you You see us exactly how we are, and yet you choose to love us that way. Oftentimes when we can't even love ourselves. God, we are grateful that you are gracious and merciful, that you forgive time and time again. And so God, today and every day we place our heart in your hands. Thankful that you are the beginning and the end. You are our everything. God, we pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.